Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn more about us through zencare.org. <laughs> so good morning, everybody. Good morning. So, um, a lot of low energy kind of dispersed energy in the room this morning. Not so much joy and happiness, it seems, this morning. So maybe I can add to that by speaking about anger. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of my favorite topic, is anger. That That destructive energy that anger holds is so familiar to me. The sadist in me loves to dispense anger. And it's also one of my growing edges and has been for many, 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 many lifetimes. This precept of not holding on to anger is one that I have to visit many, many times throughout the day. I wonder. Thank you. Sorry, my lad, I forgot you weren't here. I was speaking to nobody. <laughs> there is no self. There is no self. Excellent. So who is holding on to anger? If there is no self. Exactly. Okay. Who in this room holds on to anger? Who in this room doesn't hold on to anger? (laughs) (laughs) We've had supervisions. I know you. (laughs) I know you hold on to anger. (laughs) Someone once said, "Holding on to anger." It's like drinking poison in the hope that it will kill someone else. This is the ninth precept, not holding on to anger. Transforming suffering into wisdom. This is the precept of not being angry. Transforming suffering into wisdom. This is the precept of not being angry. This is from the Zen Peacemaker Order. I've had a couple of really beautiful poems last night as I was trolling through the web, interweb, whatever it is. Um, both entitled Anger 
This one is by Ibn Harun al Hamid. So without any, you know him? No, but your accent is very good. <laughs> I, I lived for a year in Israel, so. And dated an Arab man, so. I kind of like to live. So I'll say it again just for you, Mokka. Ibn Harun al Hamid. And um, we could make a uh, stereotype uh, the name and think about what this poem is actually speaking to. Or we could just listen to the poem and enjoy it for what it is. Anger. How is anger escaped? It stays deep within me. I think about what is lost, and the anger rises inside of me. Everywhere I look, I see what should be mine. Envy turns to anger. I think to myself, who are these people? They do not deserve such a thing I have lost. I think about what is lost, and the anger rises inside of me. It rises to such a degree, the anger turns to tears. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Harun al -Hamid. As I said, um, Anger for me is such a, a familiar presence, such a familiar friend in my life. I, um, there's so much anger in my growing up as a child, you know, surrounded by really angry people. And the anger usually manifested in, in violent behavior, abusive behavior. And um, it became kind of the, the, the norm to be surrounded by that energy. So, on the one hand, it's this, it's this dark side of me, this, you know, one of my shadow sides, is this, that I can go to this place so quickly, it's almost like I live on the, the surface, I just, I'm always kind of gliding over anger because it just comes up so quickly. It's not even, I don't even go from irritation to anger on the continuum, it's like, <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> and, uh, the people that know me now know that it's like, just Jodo, just a moment, because in the next moment I can walk away and say, what happened? We're okay, it's all right. <coughs> I mean, I just left, you know, Hanoi, <laughs> you know, and I'm back in, you know on the beach in Tulum, you know. But it's very, very uh, destructive. It can be very, very harmful. And so I've spent a lot of my later years since coming to this practice apologizing <coughs> for my actions, my sometimes unskillful behaviors, and sometimes very, very appropriate. But more often than not, there could be another way for me. And uh, it's something I have to work on constantly. And fail at constantly. 
as I said, on the one part, this this um, connection to anger can be very, very uh, harmful and skillful, uh, barrier creating. And on the other hand, it's really uh, it's protecting me in many ways, and it helps me in many ways too. It has really served me in my work as a chaplain. Uh, whether working uh, for about almost two years, I think, in a in an AIDS residence where uh, the, the folks in there were coming in off the street or out of prison. They were dual diagnosis. They were substance abusers and also living with HIV AIDS. And seeing how this population was being treated by the establishment, by the, the folks working in this particular home, particular residence, uh, being treated as less than because they were, as I said, coming in off the streets, women who were selling their bodies, men who had been in prison for whatever, it really, really touched me in so many ways for so many reasons that are obvious to those who know my uh, history that I felt that I really had to, I couldn't just stand by and let and do nothing. So I, you know, I did a number of things. I created this, this uh, initiated this wonderful meditation group and a 12-step group and art projects and uh, poetry. And I even uh, took the time to photograph each and every one of them. And then we had a display of all these wonderful black, brown, white faces, most of them ravaged by HIV and AIDS. A lot of, uh, but all, each and every one of them beautiful. One of these residents, um, I don't know if I, I may have talked about her before, was very, very special. She was enormously over, overweight, obese, uh, and had back in the early days of AIDS that um, Michael helped me the. Yeah, what's it called? The um, fat redistribution. Lipodystrophy. A terrible lipodystrophy, so she had the big hump on the back and um, was really misshapen, apart from being obese. And she was always off in the corner. No one really engaged. And she also smelled, because actually she was so big, she couldn't really take care of herself. Personal needs, so the the nurses' aides or the staff, when they felt it got too much, would intervene. Rather than when it was appropriate every week or every couple of days, they would let her because they couldn't get near this disgusting <coughs> woman. Um,
So I began a relationship with her. Let's call her Susan. So over the months of being with Susan and really, you know, people were afraid of her because she was so big and she was really, really angry. I have no problem with being with people who are angry. This is, I think I'm digressing, but the point I'm trying to make is, for me, the anger serves me in so many ways because I can really sit in other people's anger because I have seen so much of it and experienced so much of it. It's like, you know what? You have no idea. You know, it's like scaring me. So I'm able to sit very often, or more often than not, with people's anger, especially with Susan. And over the months of listening to her stories, it became very clear why she was so angry. She had been abused constantly by her mother and stepfather and uncles from the time she was 10 up until the time she was 16 when she murdered her mother and her uncle, and then served, was serving 25 to life in Bedford Hills. Right. Nobody was particularly interested enough in her, in her life to understand why she was so angry. Right. And she wasn't going to share the information, because who cared? She was in a, she was filmed while she was in Bedford Hills by Eve Ensler, who made a, a documentary called If My Words, If My Words, what was the documentary, do you remember? Gosh. Um, if My Words, it's Eve Ensler documentary. Anyway, she was uh, a part of that documentary, and for the premiere, which was, uptown somewhere, um, she was invited to go to the premiere. And a couple of other girls from the residence wanted to go too, and, uh, and she had nothing to wear. She was so big. So I took her to Burlington Coat Factory. And we got this enormous kind of room of things. And she'd never looked so beautiful. This angry, unlistened to woman turned into this little sweetheart in her big dress on stage with Evans and a bunch of other women. So amazing. But we could just get past that which is in front of us, whether it's anger, working as a chaplain, uh, Koshin and I used to visit inmates in Sing Sing prison uh, Sunday mornings to <coughs> lead meditation and uh, sit zazen and give a dharma talk. And these guys were not there for shoplifting. 
You don't go to Sing Sing for shoplifting. Pretty hard and criminals. And a few of them were there because they had committed really serious crimes out of anger. Anger at their situation, their, their own upbringings, their own color of their skin, the treatment they received. All sorts of things. And to sit with those men and listen to their stories, and to be able to find the, the lotus in the shit of their lives. And for them to be able to find it, it's so incredible. They came to this practice, this practice of Buddhism, not Zen, particularly, but we were the teachers there, the Zen teachers there, so um, really devoting themselves to turning their lives around, turning away from anger and towards something different. Such incredible teaching. The, think of the karma in that. To have had to commit such crimes, to end up in such a place, to be turned from anger towards something other, turning suffering into, the, into wisdom. What a way to learn that lesson. So in the work that we're doing, how do we experience or witness anger? When we enter into those huge <coughs> buildings, often, huge buildings of the institutions, they're filled with anger. You walk in the door, or you walk into the room, or onto the unit, and <laughs> kind of like being in here this morning, the energy of kind of disengaged sadness, not sure. You can definitely feel the energy that was here this morning. And the same is true often of walking into a patient's room. What is it like to be that patient in the bed? They're suddenly being diagnosed with a terminal illness. Or maybe facing amputation. Or is being discharged with nowhere to go no home to go to. Or it's just generally pissed off, you know, because they're in hospital. What is it like when the family members are really angry and we're walking into that room? And how do we deal with that? The staff on the floor. So much anger in this container, in this container of healing, you know, these hospitals, these places where they're looking for cures and comfort and care, and often just underlying all that is this anger, this fear. All the other emotions that are present, 
I believe that we can't touch into any of those emotions or be sensitive to any of those emotions unless we've looked at them in ourselves. Unless we've really done our work. Where does anger reside in me? Each of us raised our hands this morning. Each of us know how to hold on to our anger. Do we know where that resides in us? Do we know why we're holding on to it? What touches into us, into us? When we're able to, when I am able to fully step into my own anger, then I'm able to fully be present to another's anger. As I said, I've done a lot of work around this, and it will be, I'll be continuing to do until the day I die. Probably die angry. Uh, I, don't have one, I don't have that vision of laying on my little cotton pillow and saying, this is so beautiful. I'm ready. You know, I'll probably be really pissed off. Because it's not going the way I wanted it to go. That's, an, that's another of my things, control. I want the weather to be just like this. Marie's poem, you know, I worked with Marie last night, yesterday. How would we like to? Where would we like to? When would we like to? I can't do that exercise because it's <coughs> bound to not turn out the way I want it. And I'll be really pissed off. <laughs> if I'm not dying exactly as I uh, laid it down. So how do we work with our own anger? Not turn away from it. Not seeing it as an enemy, not seeing it as a, some kind of deadly sin, but seeing it as a wonderful opportunity to come alive. I was on the internet last night, I would say on the web, and looking for stories of anger, I came across this blog, and it, I'm not really sure if the whole thing was written by Gil Fransdale, there were a couple of quotes from Gil Fransdale, so my apologies if he didn't write this particular piece of it, but I thought it was great, particularly where we are now in our political uh, arena, climate. Um, So whoever wrote this blog, if it, and if indeed it was Gil, said, one morning I was drinking tea and reading the newspaper at home. Attention stirred in my gut while I read about the actions and words of the then President of the United States, as reported in the Washington Post. I noticed when the tension started and how it grew. I noticed that it was connected with an unpleasant voice in my mind. How can he? Question mark. The feeling enlarged as I kept my attention on it. I was starting to feel sick. Then there was an epiphany. The president is not feeling this anger. He's not affected by it. No one but me is affected by it. I am poisoning myself to no purpose. The anger lifted like a cloud in a strong breeze. I felt free. I'm happy to report that since that time, 
I hate X has departed from my vocabulary, both external and internal. The poor old, now ex-president, will get by in spite of my disapproval, but he no longer has an excuse, there's no longer an excuse for me to have a tantrum, even with myself. And I'm a better citizen without the poison of hatred. I just thought that was kind of interesting. I happened upon that little blog spot. There's a story of the Buddha uh, that is confronted by the angry and displeased Bharadavaja, the abusive. And a lot of these uh, in, the, uh, Buddhist, in these Buddhist stories, it would be, you know, so-and-so the abusive, so-and-so the stealer, so-and-so the beautiful, so-and-so the awful, so-and-so the hater, so-and-so the beast. So this is uh, Bharadavaja, the abusive. Approached the Buddha and abused and reviled him with rude, harsh words. When he had finished speaking, the Buddha said to him, What do you think, Bhadaraja? Do you think friends and colleagues, kinsmen and relatives, as well as guests, come to visit you? Sometimes, do you think friends and colleagues, kinsmen and relatives, as well as guests, come to visit you? Sometimes they come to visit, Master. Do you then offer some food or a meal or a snack? He said, Sometimes I do, Master. But if they do not accept it from you, then to whom does the food belong? Bharabhadaja responded, the food still belongs to me. So too, said the Buddha, we who do not abuse anyone, we who do not scold anyone, we who do not rail against anyone, refuse to accept from you the abuse scolding and tirade you let loose at us. It still belongs to you. It still belongs to you. So if we don't accept the tirades, the, the, the anger, the abuse that's hurled at us, if I don't accept that from you, it still belongs to you, not mine. I don't have to take it off. So when I'm sitting or entering into a room with a patient or a family that's really, really angry, and I am suddenly the object of their anger, can I stand in that moment and not take it personally? Can I see that something more is happening here that has nothing to do with me? It's really important for us as caregivers to be able to separate what's yours and what's mine and to not have to take it on. Whether it's anger, sadness. And sometimes even the joy. It's not appropriate. It's so easy for me to go down a long road of anger. <laughs> Last night I was sitting at home on the sofa, coaching was in a state of retirement. 
<laughs> in the bedroom. I'm sitting on the sofa. Oh, and so prior to this, you know, we have these two big cats we talk about. Boychik is the baby. Boychik is the, the object of all my love and affection. At the kosher. Um, probably before. Um, <laughs> Boychik can do no wrong in my eyes. He's just the most incredible, incredible, as I said, object of my love. And last night I, we got home, I fed Obi, who's this big, and Boychik is this big, and Obi ate all the food before Boychik could get to it, so I put the food, the little dish of food on the counter, and I put Boychik on the counter so he wouldn't be disturbed by Obi. And Boychik walked this food down, and then 20 minutes later, those of you who have cats know this story, sitting there and I'm looking at, uh, for information for this talk, looking for material for this talk, and suddenly I say, not in the kitchen, not in the bathroom, not, God forbid, in the bedroom where kosher is, but right in front of me. And it's dry food. You know what dry food happens when it gets into the stomach? It swells. That's what it's supposed to do. These little pellets are now this big. <laughs> and there was a mountain of puke <laughs> in front of me. <laughs> and I just thought, oh. <laughs> my little baby puking. <laughs> and I was just filled with so much love. And then it turned to, I can't fucking hear that. Koshin, come and see your son. <laughs> he's puked all over the place. Come and see him. And he's like, no, it's too gross. I can't, I I go into the kitchen and lovingly, with the paper towel, pick up all the puke. And dispose of it, pick up my boy chick and give him a kiss and say, no more food for you this evening. Now there was a time when if that had happened, I would have thrown the cat out, out of the, maybe out of the street or certainly out into the hallway and said, that's it, no more food for a week. That would have been the feeling that would have come up in me. Very, very different to today, after these years of sitting on this cushion, looking at my anger, and investigating appropriate anger. What is appropriate to pull out from my pocket or wherever, my heart, the wisdom of these teachings. Yeah, you know, just hoovered the coffee, just had my dinner and then puke in front of me. 
Caleb to say, wow, what a suffering little being Boychik is. Let's take care of him. I don't know where I'm going with this talk, by the way. So I'm going to open it up a little bit. We, we don't usually do this in these talks. Oh, I'm going to have another poem here I'd like to read. It's by a, a, a woman poet. from India. Her name is Wadha Jagwat. And this is her take on anger. I think this is, if you can, this is so, for me, such a visual poem. Maybe close your eyes while you, while I read this poem. Deep, dark ocean, womb, vortex of secrets, there lies a black pearl reflecting ominously the pure ivory of its parent oyster. There in rain I lie too, let me lie. Disturb not my watery repose, for if I rise, I shall swallow you whole. That black pearl of anger. For if I rise, I shall swallow you whole. And that's such a strong line. I love that. So, um, let's talk about your relationship to anger. Jane Wheeler. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, because what I was thinking about was Well, I totally, totally respect that <clears throat> anger is very complicated for everyone. I do believe it's very different for women. And um, so that's what I was thinking about, just how complicated it is for women to feel their anger, express their anger, understand their anger, get wisdom from their anger. It's such a huge, huge cultural overlay for women in this. So um, that's my first reaction, is uh, because anger is a touchstone of conflict, it means conflict, and um, I think women don't know what then to do with the conflict. And, and so they prefer not to confront it because it means conflict. And, um, and so they squash it and eat it and, and, and have it dwell in them in many, 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 many different ways. That um, is poisonous, deeply poisonous. And I think it's very, very valuable for men and women to talk about how it's different so that we understand each other clearly about how it poisons us in different ways. Thank you. Millette. Hmm. Um, I think for me there's a lot of discomfort around other people's expressions of anger. Even hearing about it, I think, causes a lot of 
shameful. Feels like that was the message for me. Um, that you should feel ashamed for expressing anger, particularly towards people closest to you. This is complicated because oftentimes the people closest to you are the ones who are triggering the most anger. And so, what then? What then? Thank you. Someone else, talk about your relationship to anger. Well, as a child, uh, my mother would say, when I was a child, my mother would say, watch out for Billy, he's got a temper. <laughs> and um, but when I look back on it, I realized that, in fact, my anger, I think, was justified. What was uh, wrong or didn't help in, in any way was that I acted out, but I think the energy behind it was actual terror. I think that I was really, really scared of what was happening as a result of the, uh, the, the way I was being treated, uh, the injustices I was seeing. Um, and so I, I, I had, I think in my life, had witnessed uh, males acting out, and but realized later in my life that that acting out really was being scared shit. Has nothing to do with, with with what's really wrong, what's creating the injustices. It's it's a whole other thing that distracts not only the individual expressing it, but the people hearing it. So no communication takes place other than hurt. The person is expressing it is hurt. The people receiving it is, are hurt. And I believe there is such a thing as justified anger, and it needs to be expressed, and it needs to have make make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've actually been exploring a lot is the topic of anger in relations to um, people with disabilities and emotional regulation. Because anger, on the flip side, is a way of self-preservation, of keeping you safe. And a lot of children that have disabilities, or specifically autism, when they're in school, one of the first reactions is that they're always being labeled as the angry kids, the angry child, you know, the suspensions, the, you know, let's put him in a cluster because he's angry. And really what it's all about is that this child with very limited communication is trying to protect himself. And so one of the, the things that I was exploring was how Buddhism is so, it's, it's like a saving grace for people with autism and children with disabilities because when that energy starts rising up in you, and I'm, I'm speaking for myself, when that energy of anger starts rising up in me, I'm able to identify I'm getting angry and this is the source of my anger. And, and instead of having you know this from zero to 100, it's easier to get that fire blazed down. And so that's one of the things that I've been trying to, um, to work with families that have children. Because you know they're always being labeled as the explosive child and let's just contain them. 
so they're not a problem. But really, in reality, it's all about teaching those self-reflection skills to be able to identify this energy and then, you know, be mindful of their actions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure that it's uh, relates only to Buddhism. I mean, I think in many, many traditions they're taught how to to be with that anger, to, to work with it. And I've been sitting for a couple and a half decades right now, and I go from zero to 100. <coughs> you know, so. My practice has allowed me to uh, be more aware of my anger, but for me, it hasn't felt that trajectory from there to there. I wish I could find that middle way. But still working on that one. Doc? Um, yeah, for me, this anger harkens back to last month's precept of intoxicants, particularly um, righteous indignation, which really for me was, a, was, a, was an intoxicant that I could hold on to and spin. And it's, I think the raw emotion of, of anger is short-lived. It's the story that we attach to it. And if I feel that I've been disrespected or whatever causes the righteous indignation, there's a story that I attach to it. And that's real product for me to ruminate about and chew on it over and over and over. And that's how I tend to hold on to the anger. And it's the, the emotion is long gone, but I am now creating the suffering that comes along. I know exactly what you're referring to. I don't know exactly how you feel, of course, but I know for me there's so many stories that I can tap into. It's always about something. What is the saying? If it's hysterical, it's historical. There's always, when I go to that place of real anger, and Koshin's actually great at saying, okay, what's going on right now? Who's in the room? You know, but it's not Chodo because it's attached to some old story. And then I can take a breath. It's like, yeah, that's where that's coming from. Nothing to do with this present moment, right? Which is why it's so important for me in these encounters with patients or doctors <coughs> that we have in the room, or nurses, or the staff, when they're really going at it triggers something in me. It's usually nothing to do with the person in front of me. It's like, wow, let me figure this out for a second. And then you have to walk away and come back. Someone else? Allison? Um, I agree with what you said about um, anger being, well, I was taught that anger outward, is, well, fear is the basis of it. When you direct your anger, um, your fear outward, it becomes anger. When you direct your fear inward, it, it becomes like a sadness, like a depression. And so, yeah, you know, it's really very much fear-based. I know with me, my my anger is fear-based. And the way I the way I learned to work with anger is through the elements. You know, like you don't. It's not necessary 
isn't going to work to fight fire with fire because if you have two, you know, elements of fire, you're just going to have this like. So you know, for me, the way I would deal, I deal with anger is to come at it, you know, like do it earthy way, which is, which is kind of like what's done with you when you get crazy and it's like, okay, where's this coming from? It's like a very earthy way of, of containing the anger and bringing it down. And so that's that's what that's what I would do, and that's what I I've done. I remember when my husband used to. As wonderful and you know and wise as he was, he had PTSD that came from residential school, and sometimes like when that would get triggered, he would just go boom, you know. And the and the way I would contain it was just to you know to just like <coughs> let him let him just burn it out a little bit, and then you know calmly talk to him. But if you if you went at it the other way with fighting with him or getting all upset, that wouldn't work. So, you know, I look at it as how do you, how, you know, dealing with the elements of it and, you know, how do you contain it? How do you work with it? How do you help that person? Can anyone talk to an experience they've had in a, in a caregiving role as sitting, dealing with, witnessing, experiencing another's anger? Okay. Um, yesterday when we were doing the poetry thing, that's what came up for me. I sat, and we have an outpatient clinic, and I sat across from a woman, and there was some of the other rest of the team there who was, um, who had been diagnosed with multiple, was a brain.